This is a really diverse congregation here. Uh, I have no idea how many uh, languages or language families are represented here this morning or any morning, really, that we gather together. There's certainly a lot of Indo-European languages here, right? Um, that's because Indo-European languages are the biggest language group in the family in the world. And actually, everything from Icelandic to Hindi is Indo-European language. And that includes languages as different as Persian and Romanian, which are both represented in our congregation. Um, we have Turkish languages too, not just you know Turkic languages. So we have Turkish, but we have Kazakh as well. Um, we have Bantu languages from Africa, Chinese. We have at least one Australi Austronesian language because we have because uh, Catherine speaks Fijian from the uh, from the Pacific Islands. One of the things that you realize as you travel around the world. Um, is that languages reflect what's important to the people that speak them. Many languages, like Turkish or Persian, have entirely different sets of words for your relatives on your mother's side from your relatives on your father's side, because that's a really important distinction. <laughs> In Canada, the Inuit have lots of words for snow. Falling snow, blowing snow, snow you can make an igloo out of. They don't have a word for tiger or lion. I mean, what would be the point, right? Likewise, people who leave, live near the equator have all kinds of words for monkeys and snakes and all kinds of trees and plants, but no word for snow. Once again, what would be the point, right? Um, however, there are some things that almost every language has. One of those is a word for God. Another is a word for a perfect place where good people go after they die. In old Egyptian beliefs, it's Aru, the, real, the reed fields of ideal hunting and fishing grounds. For the Celts, that's my heritage, for the Celts, it's the fortunate isle of Magmel. For the classical Greeks, it was the Elysian fields. And for Jews of Jesus' day, it was paradise. The word that Jesus uses in Luke 23, verse 43, is actually paradiso. It's actually the word that's used. And that's where we get our English word paradise from. But it isn't a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word either, or even an Aramaic word. It's actually a Persian word that's been borrowed by Greek. And the Persian word means a walled garden a place that is safe and beautiful and green and peaceful and fertile. And if you live in an area that is mostly very dry and gardens have to be irrigated, that's a powerful image. Persians love their gardens. Always have and still do. When the Taliban were defeated in uh, 2002, um, and a whole bunch of restoration projects started in Kabul. One of the very first restoration projects was the restoration of the Babur Gardens from the Mughal period. These beautiful Mughal gardens around the tomb of Babur, the king. So this 
image of a walled garden became the image of a place of perfect peace and prosperity and contentment. Now, I don't know what uh, a perfect place of peace, prosperity and contentment looks like to you. But as we think about paradise today, it's actually really important that you use your imagination. If it helps to close your eyes, go ahead. Just don't fall asleep, okay? Because <laughs> the way the word paradise is used in Scripture isn't so much about a specific place as it is about a kind of place. A kind of place that creates certain feelings in us. Because we all probably have slightly different ideas, or maybe even majorly different ideas, about what paradise is in our own minds. For some of us, Paradise is a cottage or a cabin in the woods by a lake. For, other, for, the, for others, it couldn't be paradise without mountains. And for others, there has to be an endless beach and tropical waters. The issue isn't so much what it looks like in your mind's eye as how it makes you feel. Biblically, biblically speaking, if there were a recipe for paradise... It would have at least five ingredients. And I'm indebted to N.T. Wright for this list. So first of all, paradise is a place of enormous beauty. And you, know, you really have to use enormous or awesome or humongous or something like that. Um, when you're at a place you call paradise, wherever it may be, there's incredible beauty all around you. Like the snow-capped mountains. Taurus Mountains across, you know, being reflected in the Gulf of Antalya. Or hiking the Lycian Way and seeing the rows of mountains disappearing off into the distance, each one a little bit hazier than another, like those pictures you can buy at Ikea, only real. <laughs> the beauty is all around you, 360-degree beauty, right? 1 Corinthians 2.9, it says... No eye can see, nor can any mind imagine the good things that God has planned for us. The beauty of paradise is overwhelming. Secondly, in paradise, you see and feel the presence of God. You sense in some way that God has left his footprints there. You see his creativity. You can see that God, the artist, has been at work, and this is part of his artistic painting. When I think of that, I think of you know, Merrill and I, uh, when we live in Canada, or we live in Ontario, and people come from all over the world to see the fall colors in Ontario. Bright, bright reds and oranges, and beautiful, beautiful colors. Or the sparkle of a million, a billion snow crystals sparkles shining in the sun. Thirdly, you want to share paradise with another person. Now, there may be any number of animals in your vision of paradise, but, if it, but it isn't really paradise if you're the only person there. You want another human being to be with you in paradise, someone you love and can share paradise with. Fourthly, in paradise, there's no pain or conflict or evil you know, it wouldn't be paradise if there was a war going on or people were starving or people were hurting each other, right? We all agree on that? Yep. Okay. Finally, in paradise, your heart is filled with thanksgiving and prayer to God. 
I remember uh, it, where we lived in Canada is near to what's called the Niagara Escarpment. The Niagara Escarpment is what Niagara Falls falls off. Okay, it's this the limestone escarpment. I remember one time standing on the edge of the escarpment, surrounded by 700-year-old gnarled white cedars, eastern white cedars, and looking out over the countryside below, and just spontaneously starting to sing, then sings my soul, my saviour, go to thee, how great thou art. I just couldn't help myself. It was just so... I mean, the only response, appropriate response was praising God. So paradise is beautiful. It's full of the presence of God. It's something you share with others, but without conflict. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a challenge, isn't it? And it lifts your heart in praise and thanksgiving to God. And that picture is found in various places in the Bible. But I want to look especially at where it appears at the beginning, at the end, and in the middle. Okay? So in Genesis 2, there's a picture of the Garden of Eden. A place that is beautiful, full of the presence of God. Adam and Eve shared without any conflict. And where they lived in fellowship with God. So it hits all the five points, right? So it probably comes as no surprise to you that when they translated the Old Testament into Greek a few centuries before Jesus' time, the word that they used for the garden was paradiso. And paradise appears again at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 2.7. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then later in Revelation in the vision of the city of God of, in Revelation 22, 1 and 2, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life is in paradise, the gar garden of God, and the tree of life is also in the city of God, then obviously the city is also a garden. It certainly looks a lot like a garden, or maybe more like an orchard, with a river running down the middle and the trees giving fruit all the year round. There's been a tendency, particularly amongst recent generations of Western Christians, to think of the countryside as good and the city as bad. And we saw that in the late 20th century uh, with the rush of churches to the suburbs. And, you know, I pastored an inner city church for 10 years in Canada. And it was distressing to see the number of church buildings that became mosques or Sikh temples or, um, or furniture warehouses. Because the, you know, the, the communities that used to own them had fled out of the center of the city, and then complain about how godless the city is. Well, you left it. That's why it's godless. Um, obviously, I have an opinion about that. Uh, <laughs> but in North America, Christianity is very much a suburban or rural faith. And thriving urban churches aren't that common. But in the New Testament, and in the early church, Christianity was an urban faith. One of our readings this morning mentions pagans. That's a Latin word, which literally means people who live in the countryside. <laughs> because for centuries, Christians were overwhelmingly city folks. 
and country folks were the ones who were still worshipping idols. I think it's important when we're talking about perfect places to remember that, I think Roger Greenaway said this, although the Bible may begin in a garden, it ends in a city. Albeit a city that has the marks of a garden, but it's a city, a community of people. And um, I have to say, uh, one of the first things I noticed about Turkish cities when I came here, having lived in Pakistan and lived in, um, and lived in Afghanistan, is how, how well they do, what a good job they do of um, having little parks in, you know, every few blocks. You know, it's, you know, that's part, a, a beginning, maybe a beginning foretaste of what the, um, the city of God will be like. Certainly it won't be like Kabul, which is, you know, just block after block after block after block after block of apartments with no green open space. Anyway, when John first sees the city of God in Revelation 21, it's on its way down from heaven to earth. It says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried, away, carried me away to, in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So the final picture at the end of the Bible is not that we all go off to heaven to be with God, but the paradise, the garden city of God, with all the people of God in it, comes down from God to reside on a new earth. That's what the scripture teaches. So whatever paradise is, it isn't actually our final destination. Our final destination is living in resurrected bodies in a restored creation in the presence of God. That's why classical theology calls this topic the intermediate state. What happens to us between death and resurrection, or as N.T. Wright likes to put it, life after life after death. So Jesus' words on the cross say that we'll be with him in paradise. So the idea of paradise is found at both ends of the Bible, in Genesis and Revelation, and in the middle. Between Genesis and Revelation, we hear Jesus' words about paradise from the cross. So let's just reflect for a moment on what happened that day on the hill of Golgotha. So two criminals were hanging from their crosses, just as Jesus was hanging from his cross in the middle. And all three men are in incredible pain. And if it says the first criminal kept hurling insults at Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. <clears throat> but the second criminal was different. Excuse me. The second criminal was different. The first criminal and the religious leaders being the cross were all mocking Jesus. But the second said to the first, don't you fear God? Even in the midst of his pain, he recognized that God was greater than himself and worthy of respect. The second criminal also knew that he was guilty and deserved punishment. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And as Christians, we feel that about ourselves, right? We know that we're guilty of sin and deserve punishment, right? We're all guilty of the things that we've done. 
and all the good things that we haven't done. And as Christians, we should be keenly aware that we've all sinned against God and others and that we deserve punishment. I think it's a great shame when people think of Christians as holier-than-thou types, as always think of ourselves as better than others. Because actually, no, we're just, we're guilty and we deserve punishment. Then the second criminal calls Jesus by name. Believe it or not, this is actually the only place in the Gospels where somebody calls Jesus by name. Goes, hey, Jesus. Nobody, nobody else does that. Um, all his friends and followers called him Lord or teacher or rabbi. His enemies tend to um, refer to him by titles as well. So like they talk, you talk about him in the third person as Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And that's what the first criminal does. He says, aren't you the Messiah? But here on the cross, the second criminal simply turns to him and calls him Jesus. He didn't get caught up in, you know, etiquette. Well, probably wasn't the first thing on his mind, the right way to, to, to address this guy. But he did believe that Jesus was different from himself and the other guy. And that Jesus could somehow or other make a difference in his own life. However little of that life was left. So he calls out to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Calling out to Jesus in simple faith that he can make a difference. That's how you become a Christian. You don't need lots of answers. You just have to recognize that you're a sinner. You may not have done anything that society considers bad enough for you to be punished for. That doesn't matter. We've all done things that we shouldn't have. And we've all not done things that we should have. We're all guilty of something. And that was the starting point for the second guy on the cross, right? Starting point for each one of us. This, this facility um, hosts uh, a Narcotics Anonymous group two or three times a week. And we can learn something from 12-step groups. 12-step groups, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, you stand up and you say, my name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. Or my name is George, and I'm an addict. As Christians, we can stand up and say, my name is Robin, and I'm a sinner. That's the first step. Recognizing that we're guilty. And the second is trusting in Jesus and asking him to make a difference in your life. And then we hear Jesus' words from the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I'm going to quickly look at those, that looking at today you with me and in paradise. So the criminal had asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Now clearly he saw something that even Jesus' own disciples had a hard time seeing. That Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. After all, Jesus was in the process of leaving the world, right? He was dying. And still the man on the cross asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom. I don't know what he was expecting Jesus to do. I suspect that he was thinking that the resurrection, thinking of the resurrection, and that when Jesus died, 
history would just come to an end. And then Jesus would be resurrected and something like the picture we have at the end of Revelation would happen right then. He was wrong about that. And let that be a warning to any of us if we think we have the future all figured out because we don't. But he was right to put his faith in Jesus. And in return, he got the promise that that very day he would be in paradise with Jesus. Not tomorrow, not in a hundred years, not in a thousand years, not in a million years, but today. That tells us that no matter, even though we may have no idea how it works, or whether paradise is an actual place, or whether it's a different state of being, I tend to lean towards the latter, when we die, we will experience it as being moved from this life into another way of being without any detours. For those of you who have played Monopoly, it's like go to paradise, to go directly to paradise, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not principalities or powers, not the devil or his angels, not disease, not death, nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you know Jesus, even if you've only just met him like the guy on the cross, and you die, that relationship is not broken by death. He says, you will be with me. You is the ultimate in personal words, isn't it? It will be the guy on the cross that's in paradise, not some depersonalized essence. Because one, one of the characteristics of Eastern religions is the idea that our destiny is to lose our individuality in the great sea of being. But nothing could be further from the truth, but from the biblical idea, right? The Bible is clear that our personalities live on after death. They aren't erased. You also means you and me as well, doesn't it? We too will be in paradise with Christ when we die. Jesus' promise isn't just to the thief on the cross. The promise is directed towards you and me as well. And to everyone who dies believing in Jesus. On that day, we will be in paradise with him. And that's the focus of the promise as well, right? Jesus says, with me. In paradise, the emphasis in the Bible isn't on being reunited with your loved ones. We don't go to paradise primarily to be reunited with our long-lost mother or father or brother or sister or spouse or whoever. And that's the emphasis of many concepts of the afterlife, particularly in the secular world. It's not the emphasis in the Bible. What the Bible emphasizes is that we will be with Christ. And in the word pictures painted for us in Revelation, there are lots of people. There's a huge multitude that no one can number from all the nations of the world, worshiping God before his throne. So we're not going to be lonely, but the focus isn't on us being reunited with our loved ones. The focus is on being in the presence of God. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. 
We don't know for sure what paradise is like, but we do know it will be good. That's what the word means, right? So when Paul wrote to the Philippians about the possibility of his death, he says, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And it's true that as people get older, like Paul, they begin to see leaving to be with Christ as better by far. But like Paul, they also realize that there are people here that they care about. And there are things they still like to do. So they're torn. But one thing they're not is afraid of death. Because Jesus' promise is true for each one of us. If you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't really matter what happens to you. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what happens to you. There are all kinds of ways to die. And we will all die. As I've said before, nobody makes it off this rock alive. Whether we die of old age, or die young from some, some kind of disease, or die a violent death. We worked in Afghanistan for four years. Um, I have lost 13 friends or colleagues to violent deaths. I know a fair bit about losing people to violent death. As a community, we travel more than average. Some of us more than others. So our risk of being in an air, air, airplane accident is higher than the average. Then there's crazy drivers and road accidents. Not to mention the coronavirus, right? But here's the point. It doesn't matter how you go. What matters is that when you go, you go directly into his presence. Death isn't something to fear. It's a doorway into God's presence. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts. In a time when there is, um, yeah, a certain amount of hysteria around the world concerning the coronavirus, amongst other things. Lord, help us to be people who care and are compassionate to those around us and yet recognize that death is not the end of everything. It is just the beginning of something new. Help us, Lord, to live out of that knowledge in a way that glorifies you enables us to serve people where others might not serve them, enables us to have hope in the face of death, enables us, Lord, to walk in, walk every day of our lives as if it might be our last, trusting you that whatever happens, when the time comes, we will be with you in paradise. In your name we pray. Amen.